Thank you. If you will, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 7. If you're using your electronic device, there won't be much turning, but you can push and punch whatever you need to do to get there. So John chapter 7, we are going to look at Jesus' statement that he made in the temple courtyard at the culmination of the Feast of Tabernacles. And we're going to then look back through the scripture and see exactly what he was speaking for, what he was speaking into, what he was speaking against, uh, and use that as the Spirit leads us to allow it to shape our lives. And the Gospel of John was written for a first century group of people, uh, but through God's blessing and preservation and John's wisdom, it still speaks very strongly to us today. John chapter 7 Verse 37 says this, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. I've entitled today's message, The Party That Jesus Exploits. And when I say that Jesus exploits the party, I essentially mean this. Jesus shows up to something that has one intended purpose, and he utilizes it for his own purpose. And his purpose here is to take a mirror and show it to the Pharisees, show it to the religious leaders, show it to his own brothers, and show it to the crowd of people who have gathered to celebrate this festival. And when we think of exploitation... It's just a reminder for us, and I read or listened to someone share this past week, uh, one of their uses and purposes of social media. And essentially this man said that what I try to use social media for is to encourage people, and then I speak about Jesus. And he said, and I do it sometimes in a subversive way. Uh, in other words, I don't get on there and get caught up in everything else you can get caught up on and share whatever else you might can share. He's like, but I have an avenue to exploit something for God's purpose. So Jesus takes this feast, this party, and it really is a party, and he shows up and he exploits it. And, and, he, and he allows himself to become the centerpiece of this party, uh, and he uses it to challenge. So let me remind you of some things of this group of people uh, and, and some of their purposes that they would have had, because these are the purposes that we have. Uh, sometimes we think, or well, I would say this, Jesus used this party to expose their purpose for being there, to expose the reality of what they were doing. And, you know, we can trace that all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We can take that all the way back to Adam and Eve. And the purpose for us, if we don't allow God to change it, is for us to be selfish, to get what we want, to grasp hold of whatever it is that we can lay our hands on, ingest it to our heart's desire, and then move on to the next thing. And in so doing, we end up using others. We end up uh, causing problems for others, just as Adam and Eve did as well. So when I say it was a party, let me remind you of what it was. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Jews would come to Jerusalem, and they were there to celebrate the harvest. They had come post-harvest. This is an agrarian society. They grew their food. They, they raised their animals. And so after the harvest is over, after the crop is finally in, and some of you have lived in a period of time or you've done that kind of work, and you know the relief that comes from that, the celebration that comes from a task being finished, and them knowing they have enough to make it through the next year. 
they would celebrate this very uniquely. They would take and they would gather sticks and branches and they would build like little lean-tos. They called them booths. So sometimes this is referred to as the Feast of Booths. And they would stay in those over this seven-day period. And they would stay in the booths to remind themselves of God's deliverance to them while they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And we mentioned that earlier as we look at the 40 years that they spent in the wilderness. And so they're celebrating God's deliverance to them. And they're celebrating one of the main things that they would use is water. Someone each day, one of the Levites that served in the temple, would go to the pool of Siloam. They would dip up a pitcher of water. They would bring it to the priest. And when the priest was conducting the evening sacrifice, they would pour that water out. And it was a visual reminder to all of those who were there that this precious commodity that they thought they were going to be without in the wilderness for 40 years, that God provided to them and that they lived and they prospered in that moment. And as we think of that, let's talk about the groups that were there. I've broken up this group of people into three distinct groups. There's probably more and we can divide it from there. But if you look back at verse 1 of the chapter 7, we'll see the first group. Verse 1 tells us about them. And it's this group, the religious leaders. It says this in chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. So the first group of people are the Jewish leaders. These are the priests, these are the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of the Jewish society, and they are looking to kill Jesus. Now we need to remind ourselves of what is happening here. This event is in the fall of the year. The previous event where Jesus had been present in Jerusalem was the Passover. The Passover is in the spring of the year. In the spring of the year, just four or five months before, Jesus had showed up and he had healed a lame man. Now he's done this before, but he had healed him in the temple. Not in the synagogue, not in some outlying place in some small community, but in the temple he had healed a man. And the Jewish leader said, you can't do that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that is worth death. And here's why it was worth death. And by the way, 2,000 years later, in our religious circles, if we're not careful, it's still worth death. Because what Jesus did is he took the authority away from the religious leaders. And without the authority, they had nothing. And we still, if we're not very careful, folks, 2,000 years later, understanding the individual priesthood of each believer, we are in danger of surrendering that same thing ourselves. We, we, we have this uh, understanding sometimes and we can get really sidetracked about what it means to serve God and to love God. And so he takes this man, he heals him in the temple, and they say we have to abolish him. We have to get rid of him. And so they seek to kill him. The second group of people is Jesus' physical brothers. Uh, look at verse 3 there. Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then I love this phrase here, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. What Jesus' brothers essentially said to him was this, put up or shut up. Six months before, Jesus shows up, and do you remember what he did? He fed over 5,000 people. Conservative estimates say probably 20 to 30,000 people. When Jesus got done feeding that group of people, do you know what they wanted to do? They wanted to make him a king. And you know what Jesus did? He walked away. Now, if you're Jesus' brother, you got a problem with that. 
You grew up in the same household that Jesus did. You saw everything you did. You heard your mother say you should act more like Jesus or Jesus did this and you should have done that. And you're living this thing and you know Jesus is different. You know he has different abilities and different power. But it is until there's a group of people that are willing to make him as king, you don't realize the value he has. And I have to confess that if we're not careful, we try to use Jesus for the value that he brings to us for our own profiteering as well. And so they say to Jesus, put up or shut up. You, If you're really a prophet, you're going to go back to that same place that you were at the last time. You're going to do something else powerful and magnificent. And in the back of their minds, I can almost hear them saying, and they'll make you king. And what happens when your brother becomes king? It's a good place to be, is it not? It's a good place to be. And so they say to him, go. And I like that phrase where it says, they didn't believe in him. Here's the reality. They believed the miracles. They saw them. They believed in the food. Jesus even said, y'all are following me because you want more food. What they didn't believe was in the way Jesus was going about it. They didn't believe in sacrifice. They didn't believe in humility. They didn't believe in the compassion that, that fueled his life. They didn't believe in the mercy that led him. They didn't believe in the person of Jesus. What they believed in was what Jesus could do for them. It's a dangerous place to be. I, myself, if I'm saying where do I align with this thing, if I'm not careful, the brothers are the ones that I align with the most. Come on, Jesus. Look at this situation. Look at me. Look at where I'm at. Look at what I've done. Look at the place I live. Look at the society. Look at the culture I live in. Can you just flex a little bit of that muscle for me? Can I just get a little something down here? And so they abandon him. And I think that's such an interesting reality because they leave Jesus and they go to the festival without Jesus. Now this is so interesting because in the last chapter, and I didn't even deal with this last week, but it just struck me. You remember Jesus gets done feeding the 5,000 plus people and he goes away to pray and it comes nighttime and he's not back. What do his disciples do? They get in a boat and they leave him. They literally leave Jesus. And when I see his brothers leaving Jesus, I mean, the picture that it shapes for me is this. They would rather go do their religious duty than be in the presence of the Son of God. They would rather go perform a religious function than be in God's presence. And as I said that, it struck me. I remember just about a year and a half ago, Eric Rentz was sharing here, and he was talking about where he lived at and the road he traveled and how many times he had stopped to help people, and he made this statement. He said, I always stop and help them on my way home from church and not on my way to church. And he, and he, he said that as an indictment on himself, as, as a revelation that it's somehow easy. And I thought about that, and that was such a, a shaping thing for me to realize how quickly I can go perform a religious function at the absence of God's presence. And so the brothers leave Jesus and they go up to the feast without him. And now I want you to understand this. God performed a trick on them. Okay, God performs tricks. He does tricks. And when I say tricks, I don't mean, you know, little magic tricks. But what God does is presents us with opportunities for us to allow ourselves to recognize who he is. And let me give you another example. In the book of well, no, no, sorry, I apologize. Y'all were here in the first service. You already heard this. I don't know which book it's in. It's Exodus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy, okay? Some of you would know it right off. But Moses gets angry at the children of Israel because they are angry with God and they're sinning against God. And Moses tells God, 
I don't want nothing to do with these people. You just, these are the worst people in the absolute world, and I can't understand them. I can't stand them being out here. And God says to Moses, no problem. That's no problem, Moses. I'll tell you what I'll do. Let's wipe them off the face of the earth, Moses, and let your family be the next children of Israel. Well, God's not about to wipe the children of Israel off the face of the earth. What he's doing is he's prodding Moses into doing as Moses should do to see God's revelation of who he is. And so Moses says, you can't do that. He just told God he couldn't stand the people and he wanted them gone. He wanted them off the face of the earth. And God says, that's no problem. And Moses immediately turns around and says, you can't do that. And God says, well, then you better pray for him, Moses. You better do what you're supposed to do. You better fall back into the role that I've given to you and quit trying to tell me what role I have. And so in this situation, Jesus' brothers are like, you're going to Jerusalem with us. And the idea is there's going to be a Galilean group that's going to travel to Jerusalem. And as they're going, you can just imagine these guys trying to hype up Jesus and telling everybody they got Jesus with them. They're going to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going. So they take off, and then Jesus follows them up there without them. And they enter Jerusalem empty-handed. Now, can you imagine being from Galilee and six months before you'd been there? You thought your time had come, and now you go back and you're empty-handed. And here's the crowd. Let's look at the crowd. Look at there in verse 13, or verse 12. Let me back up one more verse, verse 11. Now, at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? Among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him, and some said, He is a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So now you see the crowd. They're, listening, they're looking for the hidden God. He's not there. He didn't show up. And, and Jesus doesn't show up, and he's not there. But something happens. This interesting teacher shows up in the temple and begins to preach. He didn't show up with the Galileans. They don't know he's Jesus originally. And look what happens in verse 14. Now until halfway through the festival did Jesus not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, "How did this man get such learning without having been taught?" So what Jesus does is he shows up at the temple and begins to teach. Now there's a group of Jews that are there because they're fulfilling their role at this Feast of the, festival, at this feast of the Tabernacles. And they begin to say, this guy's a great teacher. But now Jesus had the same problem that we have today. When we start talking about anything, if you start talking about church stuff, if you start talking about culture stuff, if you start talking about sports stuff, there's one quick question people want to know. What is it? Whose side are you on? What is your point of origin? You have to tell me where your allegiance is at. And the Jews wouldn't even listen to somebody speak if they did not know which rabbis he was speaking from. That sounds a little bit like our culture today. We could take this group of people, or you could go across town and take another group of people, and you could say, I want to stand up and talk about a public culture issue, and the very first thing we would want to know is what side are they on, and if they're not on our side, boy, we'd sit there and we'd steam. Best case scenario, we'd steam. Worst case scenario, we'd get up and leave, wouldn't we? Or if it was the group across town, they'd do the same thing. Because what we say is this, you better tell me who, you can't tell me anything without telling me whose side you're on. And it reminds me of the story of Joshua. Joshua's getting ready to fight the battle, and he goes walking around with his sword in his hand, and I can just envision him, and I'm getting a little off track here, so I'll reel it back in in just a second. But 
Joshua gets his sword and he starts going around. He's getting ready to fight his first battle. And he comes face to face with an angelic being. And Joshua's like you and I. He's, he's ready. He's ready to roll. And he says to that angelic being, whose side are you on? I mean, he literally challenges something that he knows is not from earth because he's so sure he's right. And the angelic being, which was a personification of Jesus Christ, looks back at him and says, buddy, you got the wrong idea. You better ask whose side I'm on because that's not how it works. And so Joshua was reminded of that. And so this group of people, this group of people, they're very easily persuaded. They want to know what Jesus is speaking from, but it says that they're quiet and they don't want to say anything too loud because they don't want the rulers angry at them because they want, to be, they want the blessing that's going to come from the priest. At the end of the week, the priest is going to perform some rituals and he's going to bless the crowd of people. And if they've angered him, they know he might stand up in front of them and curse them and nobody wants that. And so they're making sure they keep it right. Now let's look quickly and ask ourselves what Jesus is doing here. First of all, let's remind ourselves of his patience. Halfway through the festival, he's either waited for day three or day four. He's let the festival begin without demanding the attention. And I'm reminded of the patience of God. And I'm reminded that however much I think life must bend to my terms, it does not have to because God is infinitely powerful, he is infinitely just, and he is an eternal reality. And when I say he's an eternal reality, I don't mean as something else, but what is happening in time also will happen in God's time as God allows it. And Jesus waits. He has patience. In our society, in my life today, we're not well done for patience, are we? We want it to happen right away. He teaches based on his own origin. And as he's teaching, he says to the crowd of people, he confronts them with their own hypocrisy. And the way he confronts them with their own hypocrisy is he says this, y'all are trying to kill me. They look back at him and they said, you are demon-possessed. We are not trying to kill you. We don't even know who you are. But what Jesus is revealing is this, that they've already taken a side, that they have chosen whether or not they're going to be on which side, and the side they've chosen is the religious rulers. If the religious rulers endorse Jesus, they're down for it. If not, they're out. And by the way, we saw this played out six months later when the Passover happens again, did we not? The crowd brings Jesus in, laying down palm branches in front of him, and then just a few days later they stand and they yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He stands in the way of our success. He stands in the way of us receiving our fulfillment. And I'm reminded of how quickly, as I said earlier, we divide ourselves. Are you this party? Are you that party? Are you a Calvinist? Are you not a Calvinist? Are you this Baptist? Are you that Baptist? And now we have to add all these names to it, and we call ourselves uh, conservatives and others liberals, or we call them liberals and us conservatives, whatever works for us to make sure that we identify, even within our religious groups, where we stand so that we can identify who it is that's against us. And at this party, you have this group of people, these three groups of people. And Jesus stands there. And on the final day of the festival, Jesus takes the stage. They bring the stuff to the priest. They bring him this, this bucket, this pitcher of water. The Jewish leaders are angry. They want to destroy him. They want Jesus out of the way. The agitators, the brothers... We don't even hear anything about him anymore. Jesus, you talk about exploitation. Jesus exploited his brothers. I mean, they, I think they thought this was going to be their party, and they're not even mentioned anymore. They're there, but they're not mentioned. And then you have the crowd, the 
undecided. And Jesus says this, and we read it at the beginning, but now we're going to look at it and how it applies to us. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. 2,000 years later, those questions are just as dramatic. Jesus begins by saying, who is thirsty? And I want to remind you of something. Normally, when we begin to talk about Jesus, we say things like this. Who wants to go to heaven? And in my life, I promise you, I've met very few people who have an aversion to heaven. I've met very few people who have an aversion to eternal life. I've met very few people who have an aversion to potential peace and joy. But I have met a lot of people, myself, right at the front of them, who have said to God, in this situation, I will not profess and confess my need for you. I got this, God. You can step away. You can step back, Jesus, because I don't need this. And Jesus uses water to say this. If anyone is thirsty, you have to confess your thirst. And what Jesus is saying here, the confession of being thirsty is a deep, personal, core-driven confession. I have needs, I am without, and I cannot provide what I need. And as I say to the students all the time, that's not a Sunday school answer. And what I mean is you can't just say, I have needs. You say things like, I have issues with family. I have issues with work. I have this. I have pride. I have frustration. I have anger. I have jealousy. And you name those things out because that is confessing your thirst. If you can't call it what it is, it's not thirst. And so Jesus says to the crowd of people that are there, this water that you see poured out, this is representation of me. And if you want what that water provides, you have to say you're thirsty. You have to confess your need. You have to profess your need for thirst. And then he follows that up by saying, come to me and drink. Once again, this is not an empty statement. This isn't spoken into nothingness. There's no, there is a legitimate goal, and the goal is the person of Jesus Christ. John wrote that 2,000 years ago. It meant as much to those people as it does to us today. The goal is still same, the same. The person of Jesus Christ. Come to me. We must embrace the person of who Jesus is, the sacrifice, the compassion, the humility. And we have to remind ourselves that this is exactly what the brothers did not want to do. They didn't want to embrace Jesus' compassion and mercy. They didn't want to embrace the God that walks away from the crowds, and they didn't want to embrace the God that would come in and not be celebrated. They wanted to embrace the God that would get them what they wanted. And I still have a problem with that today. I want the God that will give me what I want. I want the God that will satisfy what it is that I think is important. But Jesus says this, you must go to him and drink. You must go to the person of Jesus Christ and take in who he is. That must become our life. And then he says this, and whoever believes in me. And I'll tell you this, the brothers believed in Jesus' miracle. They saw the water turn into wine. They saw the bread feed thousands of people. But they had a problem with the God who walked away. They had a problem with the God that wouldn't let himself be anointed and drug up into Jerusalem and vanquished the Romans. And I still got a problem with that God today myself. And I have to confess that. that this idea, this belief in Jesus as an eternal Savior means that I have to believe in Jesus as a right now Savior. 
And not as in, I'm going to make it, so I guess it doesn't matter, but as in this situation, He is present. God is present in this situation. In your life and in your relationships and in your circumstances, God is wholly present or He's not present at all. If He's an eternal being, and Jesus says Himself that He's eternally slain from the foundation of the world, if He is that person, then He is eternally present in every circumstance. And it stinks sometimes, and it feels like he's not there. You can look at the stories of the disciples to see it, but that's the Jesus we must believe in, not the Jesus who gets us something one day later when things work out better for us. And then Jesus takes and he points at the religious leaders, and he says, y'all are missing it, because he said this, Scripture said it all the time. Y'all thought Moses was about Moses? It wasn't. It was about Jesus. You thought David was about David? It was about Jesus. And he's saying to them, you need to go back and read it. And it should say to us, when we go to the Old Testament, sometimes we get excited. We, th- we start thinking about stones and David and Elijah and fire and all those things. But let me tell you something. Those things are about Jesus. That's what they're about. Not an individual getting their way. Not an individual exercising their power. They're about the person of Jesus. And then he says this, and this is a challenge. He said, anybody who does that, the rivers of living water will flow from within you. That we begin to reflect the nature of God. That we begin to pour out the power of God in our lives. That we begin to enact the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus in our life. I have to remind myself, and and it's not easy. It's no easier for me than it would be for you. I have to remind myself that life is not about getting what I want. Life is not about getting what I want even in this moment and even in the next moment and in the next moment. But rather it's about becoming the, like the person of Jesus. And when we do so, the, His living waters flow from within us. And then what He has done for us begins to impact others. We have this idea, I have this idea, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, that we can coerce people into getting right and into following God. And it never works that way. What we do is we become the living waters of Jesus Christ that flows into their life, that gives them life, that allows them to have life, to even become conscious of the need to, quote-unquote, get right. And so our challenge today is this. Will we step into the moment with Jesus? Will we come to the slowly and humble God? Or will we do like the brothers did and say, I don't know what's going on with Jesus, but I'm going to go to church today. And do my religious function? Or do we say, as I go to church today, as I sing these songs of confession with my brothers and sisters in Christ, as I read the verses on the scripture, as I hear the word proclaimed, as I hear people pray, that I'm joining with them, that I'm allowing my heart to identify with these people in this room, that I too am going to allow the living waters to flow from within us. Brother Mike's going to come. He's going to lead us. Miss Lisa's going to come and play. And our question today is this. And after standing up here and talking for 30 minutes, my answer is physically right now, yes. Are we thirsty? Are we thirsty? Do we need, not for God to do something somewhere out there, folks. We don't, we, we can get sidetracked by that. But do we need the very person of Jesus Christ present in our lives today? And will we allow those living waters to flow from us? Let's pray. Almighty God, you are faithful, you're compassionate, you're merciful, you're gentle, and you're kind. 
And out of all those things, we ask for your mercy. That as you guide us, that you direct us, that we'll see and we'll understand the living waters that flow from you. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I urge you to stand as we sing the song of the invitation. Change my heart.